Um, we're on chapter 5 and chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians. Um, in a way, these, um, these two chapters are... Um, I don't really quite know how to, to, to describe them because really they are so basic to, Christian, to the Christian life that it's almost inconceivable that we would need to even go through them because it should be uh, self-explanatory, we should know the stuff that Paul talks about in here, we should already have decided that uh, this is the way we are going to live, but unfortunately in our culture and in our time, um, these chapters are no longer basic. They are no longer um, practiced within the Christian community as a whole. I'm not talking about individually. So, um, And so God knew what we didn't know, probably. He knew that there would be a day and a time. Well, I suspect it's always been that way, but um, he knew that there would be a day and a time when immorality of all description would be tolerated, if not encouraged, <coughs> within the church. Um, and that is, as I say, it's almost impossible to believe. <laughs> but uh, So we're going to go through these two chapters today, and um, I, I thought we could just begin. Remember a couple of weeks ago, what we did was I read a verse, you read a verse, I read a verse, you read a verse. I don't know if you liked it or not, but I liked it, so we're going to do that again. <laughs> and... Um, and we're going to read all the way through, chapter 5, chapter 6. So I'll read the first verse, you guys read the second, and then we'll go on. Okay? So, chapter 5, 1 Corinthians, verse 1. It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, and immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. You have and have not did he say? For I, on my part, though absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this, as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I live in you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one over to sa such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven, so that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world, or with the covetous and swindlers, or with idolaters. But actually, I wrote to you to s not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person, or covetous, or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Well, what am I to do with judging my sinners? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. 
Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to the Lord before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we will judge angels? So if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are no, of no account in the church? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren? But brother goes to law with brother, and that before unbelievers? Actually then, it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? Oh, sorry. On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud. You do this even to your brethren. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food. But God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. Now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says the two <coughs> shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Um, I'm so sorry. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, who you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. So, as I say, fairly straightforward, I think, these um, two chapters. And yet, it seems like they've been forgotten, really, in the, um, in the church. So, what do you think is the, is the topic? I think you can put both these chapters together under one heading. What is the topic that Paul is dealing with in these two chapters? Oh, immorality, yes, but he's also talking about lawsuits. So if you had one, one heading for the whole two chapters, what do you think it could be? Wrongdoing. Yeah, it could be wrongdoing. 
Yeah, I think he's talking about church discipline. He's talking about church discipline, yes, lack of judgment, but lack of discernment. Um, and, and really, I think what he's holding them accountable for is that they're not doing anything about what's going on. Not only are they, uh, they are doing their own immorality and their own taking other people to court, but he, what he's talking about is that the general church itself, who are obviously not all involved in immorality or in these things, are not doing anything about it. So he's holding accountable not just the people who are practicing immorality, but the people who are knowing that's going on and not doing anything about it. And that's the big thing in our day, isn't it? Um, it's, the, it's the fact that we seem to have given up on any idea of church discipline, any idea of being accountable one to another. Um, so um, if you had to um, break it up then, uh, there's probably uh, three headings, I suppose. If you had to break it up into a little synopsis of what Paul says, how would you do that? What would he say about professing Christians who practice immorality? Professing Christians who practice immorality, what? Hypocrisy. Yeah, what does he say you should do? But under the heading of church discipline, what should you do with Christians who practice immorality? Don't mix with them, Don't mix with them and throw them, throw them out. Put them out of the church. When he says put them out of the church, what does he mean? Yeah, put them out of fellowship. He doesn't mean excommunicate them. He means put them out of fellowship, i.e. do not fellowship with people who are practicing immorality. Um, what's the second thing then? What's his second thing about if you have a dispute with someone? What would he tell you to do? Sort it out in the church. Sort it out in the church. Go to people inside the church to arbitrate between <coughs> rather than going outside to lawyers. Um, so, so disputes between Christians should always be settled within the church. That's what he's saying. And the third thing, the, th the third thing really, which is kind of back to the immorality thing, why is sexual immorality so wrong? Because it's against your own body and actually it's against God's body because Christ is, you are in Christ and he is in you. So now it's not just that it's an, a sin against your own body, it's a sin against Christ's body. Um, and he gives it a whole other dimension. Sexual immorality is against, um, against Christ, actually. Um, I think there's a verse in here in chapter 6. Um, uh, yeah, I can't find it. Um, yes, food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. So um, when you uh, commit immorality of any description or any, any sin, actually, you are sinning against the Lord specifically, against your own body and against the Lord. What does sexual immorality encompass? What's he, what's he including in that? Yeah, if you had to describe, now if you were to say in, in our language, not using the scriptures, although that wouldn't be good probably, but if we had to say, what is, what, if you had to define sexual immorality, yeah, how would you define it? Something that is, is outside 
There you go. Anything that is outside marriage, anything at all, any sexual uh, in involvement that is outside of marriage. Um, so all sexual relationships outside of marriage. And what's the basic reason for the, the, the severeness or the, um, the, sorry, the severity of um, adultery and fornication? Yes, yes, but what does he what does he start here? Because he's going to continue it in chapter seven, which we're going to look at next time. But he's starting to lay down something about the sexual relationship outside of marriage, why it is so bad, um, and he's, he's he's going to talk about that further in chapter seven. But what he starts to say here is because the marriage relationship, the sexual relationship between man and woman, is in itself a sacrament. It is a picture of the relationship between Jesus, uh, between God and uh, Christ and the church. And so um, it's intended, sex is intended to so bind two people together so that they do become one flesh. He even quotes that in these, in these chapters, uh, that the two may become one flesh. So the sexual relationship between a man and a woman in marriage is a sacrament. It's a sacrament. It is something that honours God. Um, and he's going to go into that in chapter 7 because, well, because what's happened in our society is two things. One <coughs> is that sexual immorality at the moment is rampant and probably has been since the 50s and 60s, um, inside and outside the church. But also, conversely, what's happened is we have started to believe that sex, even within marriage, is somehow shameful. That somehow there's nothing right about it. And that's what he's also going to go into in chapter 7. Because what happens is, when the teachers are going around the church in Corinth and they're bringing all this false teaching... Part of the false teaching is, one end is, you can do what you like because your spirit is saved. That's one end. So you can, you can live licentiously. It doesn't matter. And the other end is, you can't have any of these pleasures, these uh, things, even within marriage, because that does not honour God. So you have to be... Um, you have to beat your body, if you know what I mean. You have to defeat all those things. So it's like uh, food. Food is good. But, you know, they would start to be fasting six days a week rather than eating. Um, sex is good, but they would start to say you can't have any enjoyment within your marriage, sexual enjoyment, even within your marriage. And, and that caused a lot of things that were going on at the time. That's part of the Gnostic heresy is that if you really want to honour God, you have to um, deny those things in yourself. So, as I say, you've got these two extremes really, two extremes of living. And here, in the first one, Paul is going to deal mainly with the licentiousness. Um, and then in chapter 7, he's going to open that door to the fact that sexual relationship within marriage is a good thing. And it should be encouraged, and it should be enjoyed. Because God is a loving God, and he invented sex. And so it's not that sex in itself is wrong, or relationship is not wrong, it's that um, it's being taken outside of marriage. Everybody knows this, but I, you know, the thing is, everybody knows it, but we live in very confusing times. We, you know, there are even Christians who will write books about what is okay in marriage and what isn't sexually. 
you know, and, and you can read, well, it's okay to do this, but it's not okay to do that. And God's frowning when you're doing this. Now that's creating legalism within something that God has established between a man and a woman. So, um, yeah, so Paul's dealing here. He's talk, talking about the fact that it's a sacrament and that marriage is a covenant. It's a covenant. It's a covenant relationship between a man and a woman. Um, and it reflects the, king, the commitment of God to his people. Yes, Alan? It used to be way back on the Pink of England. Yeah, the women. Yeah, yeah. And that's what I'm saying. So that, that in a way, is, is kind of part of this, that, there's, that, that somehow we are not to enjoy things. Yeah. If we're Christians, we can't enjoy things. Uh, we can't enjoy sex, we can't enjoy food, we can't enjoy wine, we can't enjoy all of these <coughs> things. And uh, Paul will go to great pains in these chapters to say, actually, that's wrong. That's really, that's wrong. And that sex is a, it's a sacrament um, given by God, sexual inter Im intimacy, and marriage is a covenant. It's a covenant relationship. And both of them reflect God and the ch or Christ and the church and God and his people. Um, within the context of marriage, sex is beautiful and right. There is nothing about it that is wrong. Um. And in a way, the, the fact that with the wrong teaching is given, really, we're left over, aren't we, even if you understand that, perhaps with the feeling that it's shameful. Yes, it. yes, so exactly. Yes. Both yes. And both of them actually have taken root yeah, because yeah. they're both heresy yeah. and they're both and and so in a way uh, the one gives rise to the other, doesn't it? Yeah. You know, there's uh, there's this kind of teaching that it's wrong to enjoy sex within marriage and so everything becomes shameful mm -hmm. and then you feel guilty and then you want to hide from God because you feel guilty about something that he's actually given you as a gift. Mm -hmm. Um and then the other end is, as I say, that you just dispense with all of it and decide, you know, I can do what I want. So um, anyway, so that's what he's talking about. So within the context of marriage, sex is beautiful and it's right. And, uh, and that marriage is a covenant relationship between a man and a woman. There is no place in scripture for any other marital relationship. It's one man, one woman joined together in one act of union, one flesh. Um, so let's take a, a hypothetical case, because Paul's talking about church uh, discipline. J let's say there's a woman in your local fellowship, and um, she was growing in the faith. She came to the Lord, and she's been, you know, you've been discipling her, and she's been growing in the Lord, and, um, and then she's going through a painful divorce. Her husband perhaps is not a believer, and he decides he's going to leave her, and, and that's painful to her, and it's a very difficult, um, difficult time. Uh, and then while she's married, um, she has an affair with a neighbour who happens to be a Christian. And um, she has an affair with a Christian man. And a situation which you as a fellowship, so it's all us here, we all know about. And we talk to her about. And we say, you can't do that. You're a married woman and you're in a married relationship and you can't have um, a, uh, an affair. And she says, it's over. I know I can't. I've finished. It's all done. It's all done. And then um, you discover she's living with him, with the neighbour. What do you do? 
This is what Paul's talking about here. It's that situation. It's a Christian woman who understands who Jesus is, who has believed in him, who has gone through and going through a painful divorce. So her situation is difficult and you feel for her because you, you, your heart breaks for her and she's having an adulterous or she's having a relationship with a man outside of marriage. It's that situation that he's trying to deal with and that he's trying to tell them about. Um, so what would you do? What's your instinct? Disassociate yourself. Disassociate yourself, yeah. Draw back because yeah, who likes confrontation? Yeah. No one likes confrontation. Yeah. So for the most part, a lot of Christians will pull back from that. They'll pray for that woman. They'll maybe even pray together for that woman, but they won't directly go to that woman because they will feel, well, who am I to judge? And my life's not so great. And, you know, I know that I'm, I'm not in the right place with the Lord. And all of those things to make it easy not to say anything to that person um, or is it really caring and loving I mean she's had a really hard time and maybe she really loves this guy and he maybe he really loves her and maybe this is going to be great for her and the Lord's going to bring it round I know but that's what I'm so talking about Kemba. we have these thoughts we do and consequently, we allow things to continue in the fellowship because we don't want to confront them. We don't want to appear judgmental and we, don't, we want to be loving and caring. But within your scenario, you'd already gone and spoken to her. Yes, yes, she yes. Is, is yes. Her right, yeah. yeah so, so, so you don't speak to her again? Well, that's what I'm asking. I that's what I'm asking. What do we do? See? Yeah, he has, but she, he's not in your fellowship. She is. So, you know. In scripture, it does say that if you've been and you've spoken to the person mm. and they haven't paid any attention, mm. then you go with some of the people in the fellowship mm. and you talk to them about mm. it. And then if you do that and mm. they don't respond, mm. then you have to. But the thing is, we've had this situation, I'm sure we've all experienced The sad thing is that then the person, that, that woman, leaves the church with a very bitter feeling, says so much for love, you know, because they are all judging me, you're all um, condemning me, um, goes away, bad mouths her church to her friends, her probably non-Christian friends, you know. And what, it's such a mess. Yes, it's such a mess. It's such, such a mess. It's such a mess. It's a mess. But we are to honour God, aren't we? Yes. 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 But it's obviously not easy, Linda. It's obviously not easy for the vast majority of people because Paul writes about it here, and he's writing to a whole church because they're not dealing with these situations. He says it's even reported that a man has his father's wife. So he's obviously heard about a particular man who is sleeping with his father's wife. So, you know, yes, yes, it's, it, we are to honour God, and yes, uh, there'll Isn't be some people who do that. Yes, yes, and that's right, else. that's right. But, but uh, what I'm trying to get us to do is to really consider, actually, do we really do that? Is that what we see carrying on? And actually, do we do it individually? Do we look at that and think, or do we make excuses? 
Should it be, though, that church discipline has so gone out the window anyway? I, mean, I don't imagine many of us can think of a situation no. where somebody... Actually, in, in ours, we had a chap years ago who was a worship leader, and he started living with somebody, mm. and he was asked to step yeah. down from mm. worship. He was mm. allowed to come to church, mm. but that was, in a sense, church leadership mm. action. Mm. But do we not have that relationship now where our elders have that authority they don't upset anybody. Mm. You know, they do, but we they should not upset anybody though, do they? The church leaders don't upset anybody. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe, maybe so. I, I think what Vanessa's saying is quite valid actually because uh, in churches today we've invented this hierarchical structure so it's always somebody else's job isn't mm. it? to do that rather mm. than to just be yeah. a sister and go on. I really want to, you know, for some people it's obviously really straightforward but Paul will say just the chapter before but chapter 4, verse 1, Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. But to me, it is a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any court, human court. In fact, I don't even examine myself. For I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted. But the one who examines me is the Lord. Now that's just the chapter before, it's the page before on this letter. And what he's basically saying is, I'm not really interested in your judgment of me. I'm not even really interested in my judgment of myself. I'm only interested in what, how the Lord judges me. Now you get into very dangerous territory unless you understand the context by which he's talking about this. Because what will happen is, people will start to talk about, yes, but let's now, if I add something into that scenario, where the woman's husband is physically, emotionally, and verbally abusive. Now what do you do? Who, who is? The woman's <laughs> husband. This is a hypothetical case. She's left him. They're divorcing. You've spoken to her... Well, whichever, whichever. I'm, ch I'm changing the scenario. It is hypothetical. I don't know this person, so um, at least I don't think I do. I should have a look around. I don't know. I don't know this person. So, you know, what I'm trying to say is things are not simple. Life is not simple. And we are supposed to be taking 1 Corinthians 5 and 6, talking about church discipline, but we have to be understanding that discipline in the context of grace and truth grace and truth and how do we really effectively deal with this woman who's gone through a verbally physically emotionally abusive marriage who is uh, struggling to be free from this man who has taken solace in the arms of another and who is now living with him redirect her back to the word of God <coughs> yeah and then what do you do so this is a really serious what do you do then grace and truth walk with her in the word of God yeah but he yeah. says put them out of fellowship so what's the difference oh I see well, he says Paul says put them out of fellowship have nothing to do with an immoral person is that about the 11 and the unleavened that uh, a little leaven spoils the, the whole barrel? Well, yes, what he says, that so leaven and unleavened, yes. So, you so actually she can't be in fellowship because you can't... Well, that, that's where I want to get to. See, <coughs> see, Jesus deliberately included the Samaritan woman and the uh, Mary Magdalene. He deliberately included those. He was not judgmental of the, the woman who they dragged in front of him. He said, go and sin no more, but he didn't cast her out. Yeah. Yeah. So what is the, what, how do we deal with 
Corinthians 5 and 6, and the woman that we know and that we love, who is just trying to find human love, human arms to hold her when she has had a lifetime of abuse or a marital lifetime of abuse. Well, this is what... Yeah, but so you guide her in the word, and then what? She still carries on but with this man. If they stopped living together and sorted out their life and got divorced properly, mm. they could then marry, mm. couldn't they? Yeah. So living together... That would be a perfect scenario, wouldn't it? Yeah. That would be yeah. easy for us then. <laughs> yeah. We'd know just what to do. Yeah. I, I want well, to get... she moved in with him. They were living together. And he was in a fellowship and, and elders from the church he was in came from miles away to talk to them, to tell them it was wrong. Mm. And I think suggest that they, you know, didn't live together. But anyway, they took Embridge and uh, my sister in law who was so safe had spoke had come to be a Christian during this time she was child. So she wanted no more to do with this church. Mm. Mm. And um, he mm. stopped going as well. So mm. it really Mm. Nasty. Though I agree that they had to be told, but um, you know they both just left the church and didn't go back. Yeah. So it's that that we want to get to. It's exactly that mm. scenario that we want to get to, so that we really understand. Okay, what are we to do? We're to take these instructions from Paul. They are obviously from God, and we are to align them with particular specific situations <coughs> that we find ourselves in, and try to decide what does God mean here. Go ahead, Alan. Is there any divorce in heaven? <laughs> Um, I'll ask when I get there. <laughs> uh, let's, um, yeah. I find it really difficult when you're talking to people in this sort of situation because what I've very often heard them say is, the thing is, my relationship with God is absolutely fine. You know, I pray regularly. Yeah. And God is loving and I, he is, you know, my relationship with God is fine. And he's fine about this. Hmm. Mm. What do you say? Mm. Mm. When people, if people really believe, yeah, yeah well they say, oh, that's between me and God. Yeah, that's yes. just a polite way of saying, mind your own business, really. <laughs> 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 okay, there's two things I want to talk about. First of all, the cu- the culture in Corinth was immoral. It was an immoral culture where anything goes. And that's the same as our culture today. Anything goes. There is no such thing as right and wrong. It is simply what you choose to do. So we are facing the same sort of situation they were. It's immoral in the same ways. There are all sorts of different immoralities, but they're all... uh, And and they've come into the church, and that's the big point. They've come into the church. So Paul's trying to address a culture, a church within a culture where immorality is not frowned on at all. In fact, it is encouraged that you find your freedom, that you live in the truth, that you declare yourself to be whatever you want to declare yourself to be. All of that is not new. It was going on in Corinth. And so it's that that he's um, talking into. He's talking into a culture that says, it's my right to be happy. God wants me to be happy. I should be happy. Do you see what I mean? So it's not necessarily your lifestyle that Paul's talking into. He's talking into a culture that's probably unlike your lifestyle, but is true of our culture today, generally. So um, uh, let's think about um, 
what happens when you become a Christian? What happens to you? You give your life to Jesus and or to God, yeah, and you become a new creation. Because how do you become a new creation? Because the Holy Spirit comes in and you are born again. You are born again. What happens then? Yeah, you find within you a desire to want to follow Jesus. Yeah, then what happens? You start to... To change. <coughs> you start to be transformed from the inside. That's the promise of Scripture. You'll be transformed. You'll be born again and transformed by the renewing of your mind. And the Holy Spirit will, will t- change you from the inside out. Change you into what? More like Jesus. More like Jesus. You will look more like Jesus. You will think and act and feel and move more like Jesus. So can you separate being born again with being transformed? Is it possible to be born again and not transformed? How come? Because you're not learning, but haven't you got the Holy Spirit? Yes, you have choice, you have choice, you have choice. So either you hear error, you hear false teaching, and you follow false teaching because it tickles your ears and you want to go that way, or you don't hear any teaching at all and you're left to fend for yourself, and so you continue to live. What is the other option? Well, the other option is that you grow in the Word, you feed yourself. You grow in the Word. What happens when you grow in the Word and you grow and you start to be transformed? Well, it's um, what comes first, the chicken or the egg. It's like a continuation. You're in the word. You're being changed. The word. But what? When you're you. being changed, what happens in that changing? You're right. But what happens in that changing? What? what how will that happen? What, you start to hate what Jesus hates. Yeah. Yeah. And love what Jesus loves. Yeah. That's a perfect world in a perfect scenario. Do you really hate what Jesus hates and love what Jesus loves, or isn't that a series of steps mm. or where you have to mm. submit? You have to give up or surrender something that actually you like, but you find out that God doesn't, or he doesn't want it for you. Now comes the choice, doesn't it? Will you give it up, or will you take it on, whichever way that is? Will I submit my will to the will of God? So what do you think happens with hundreds of thousands of Christians around the world or throughout time what do you think has happened with those christians well, they choose not to change say that again jenny yep it's all it's been watered down and even when it hasn't been watered down you come to one of those steps and that's just a step too far it's just a step too far for me lord because not because i want to be disobedient not because i want to necessarily walk the, the wrong way but because i am let's say this woman go back to this woman i cannot live on my own i need human love i need to be held if you knew my life you'd know and god wants me to be held and i think he's given me this man because he he knows how much i need to be loved do you see what happens? What happens is there's a, there's a growing that's going on, but there's a point that you reach where all of your huma, human need overtakes your, uh, your need or your desire to obey God and to, to live the way he wants you to live. And so what happens when that happens? What have you got to do? 
if, yeah, I mean, that's the perfect scenario. No, it is. But what will you have to do in order to live the lifestyle that you know is not what God wants? You have to find your joy in him, don't you? No, I, yeah, no. But what will you have to do? What will you have to do? If you're not going to surrender, if you've reached a point where you've said, I can't go, I, I just that's a step too far. I need this loving. What starts to happen is that you start to deceive yourself. You start to justify your own behavior because what you're looking at is, it doesn't matter what all you guys say because you don't know what's in my heart. You don't know how I feel. But God knows. So now you're justifying what you're doing because you have to do it or else you're in torment every moment of every day. And that is what starts this road to um, walking, not walking away from God. I'm not saying that you lose that, your salvation, but living a lifestyle that is not pleasing to God. That's, that's how it happens. Yeah, and I was actually in that position many years ago, 30 odd years ago, and um, I just walked away from the Lord because I didn't want to do that, don't want to live that lifestyle, I was damaged and hurt and I was divorced mm. and an abusive husband, mm. so there was plenty of justification for yeah. me finding peace and, and love elsewhere. With someone else, and yeah. I did, yeah. Um, it took, um, he then became a Christian and I married him, so that's okay, so the scenario was good, but it did take a very loving fellowship to sit down with us. And when Ed had become a Christian, the was the, brave enough to say, and I think he was brave, because he, he was putting it on the line, this is not right. So we had a choice at that point. Do we carry on doing what we're doing, or do we hold off and then get married and start again as in, in that sense? And you would say your loving fellowship helped you with that, helped you to do that? Yes, because there wasn't any judgment. They knew, because we were open about it, so they knew we were living together. Mm. So I, I think it's very difficult, and I think they must have sat down and not known what to do, what to say, and mm. how to behave. They must have puzzled. We didn't puzzle at all. We just were quite yeah. open. Mm. But, mm. The, the but then we didn't ignore them, you see. Mm. We, the, that scenario, we listened to what they said mm. and changed the way we lived. They didn't ask if we changed the way we lived. We just did. And they left that between us and God. Mm. So there wasn't, well, have you changed the way you're doing? Mm. You know, we, because mm. we had opportunity, but we, mm. because our relationship with God was as it was, didn't mm. matter in the fact whether they knew or not, it mattered whether God knew. Mm. Mm. So I, I think it's very, it's ever so difficult. It is difficult, mm. and that's what I want to get to. This is not mm. clear cut. <coughs> the chapters themselves are clear cut. They need a strong fellowship. But the, well. the actual working out of it is not clear cut. Go ahead, Rosie. It's just that. Uh, that's one thing that it does sound, you know, the way we're talking at the minute, is though it's clear cut. So here's this choice. I'm going to submit. No, I'm not going to submit, so I'm going to walk away from the church. But actually, it doesn't happen like that. You, you say in your heart, I'm not going to submit to what the Lord wants, but I still love the Lord. I'm still going to read the Word. But it drifts. You drift into dryness yes, and you drift into definitely. barrenness. And you don't actually notice yourself no, disappearing exactly. into the ether. Yeah. And then suddenly you're without God. Yeah. So it's, it's very deceptive. Yeah, that's what I mean. So you are deceiving yourself yes. and the enemy is encouraging you to deceive yourself. I think the prodigal son gives you that picture. Yes. He's walking off Definitely. and then has to come back. Yeah. Go ahead, Alan. We were just talking to a woman this morning that... Mm. that 
and in the name of Jesus, and she's walked away from the church. Yeah, she's walked away, and she used to be part of a group we were in in Bassey years ago, and uh, had a very uh, powerful prophetic ministry as well. Um, and I asked her about her walk with the Lord. I thought, I'm going to have to do it. You know, we can't just talk about what's mm. the weather or mm. not, you know. Mm. It was just as we were coming uh, here, up mm. house. And um, I think what has happened to her husband isn't a believer. Mm. And I know you'd appreciate mm. this, Anne. Mm. And it was causing tension. Yeah. And so she's chosen the easier option yeah. to not walk with yeah. the Lord, but yeah. just to please you know, yeah. her husband. And so, and, it, and that has been a gradual thing, and obviously trying to, you know, encourage her yeah. to, you know, really yeah. come back to the Lord and blow the dust off your Bible, yeah. you know, but, yeah. um, and, and I can understand that, and I'm sure you could understand yeah. that, and yeah. there, there must be many couples where one is a believer and one is not that you perhaps married an unbeliever, but mm. might you, mm. one has become a believer mm. and the other, mm. you know, hasn't. Mm. And, and it can cause mm. the tension, mm. and, and it's easy just to to choose the easier option. Yeah, it? it is, it is. I think um, I put some questions down in the homework. I don't know if anybody looked at them, but I put some questions down which we'll answer, because I think that what we have to see is that Paul is describing a situation that's going on in Corinth that is completely different to the situations I have just described. He is not describing the situation of you and Ed, or this fictitious woman who needs loving and is lonely, and he's not describing that. No. He is describing rampant immorality with no thought that it might be wrong. He is describing a completely licentious behavior that it seems from the outside they cannot even have heard that they shouldn't be doing this yeah. because it's on such so a it's wide scale. It's yes. So that's what, that's what when, when we're looking at our churches today and we're seeing the ordaining of homosexual priests and uh, lesbian uh, priests or vicars, when we're seeing the um, adulterous affair of the minister who's still being the minister or the youth pastor who's living with his girlfriend and that doesn't seem to matter, that's what Paul is talking about. He's talking about a church that seems to have no clue that any of that isn't right. Yeah. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. So it's not the case of the woman who needs loving or the individual who's struggling because of what they perceive to be going on in their own body. That's not, this is not the case for that, that one person. That one person, above all else, needs someone who knows the Lord better <coughs> to be loving them and caring for them and drawing them closer into the Word of God and into a relationship with God. So I want to just ask the question, How the first question I wrote was, um, how dare we judge other people? How dare we judge? That was the question I asked. Answer these questions in the homework. How dare we judge um, First uh, Corinthians 5, 1 to 13. How dare we judge? What basis do we have to be able to look at a church where rampant immorality is going on, where everyone seems to be saying it's okay? How dare we individually and collectively stand up and say that's wrong? How dare we do that? We need to answer that question. I'm not talking about the individual cases now. 
I'm not. I'm talking about a, a church society that believes it's okay to live any way you want. Well, God says judge not. You will be judged. Uh, Jesus actually says, do not judge, yeah, Matthew 7, so that you will not be judged. But he does say that we should learn. He says, instead of judging people, you should, uh, before you try to take the splinter out of your... Um, friend's eye, you should take the plank out of your own. But he doesn't say, don't take the splinter out. He just says, before you start to judge other people, make sure that what's in your eye, or in your thinking, or in your life, is not a hundred times worse than what's in theirs. So what do you think he means by that? Because he doesn't say, don't take the splinter. Yourself. Examine yourself. Be right with the Lord. Be asking the Lord. Before you go sweeping in in your judgment about this is right and that's right and that's not right, be sure you understand why <coughs> and understand what your purpose is. What is Paul's purpose for judging this man in this letter? Yeah, but he says he's handed someone over to Satan or he's handed someone to Satan so that his flesh might be destroyed, but his spirit held intact. So what's Paul's total reason for his judging? To save him. His purpose in judgment is always redemption, repentance, salvation. That is always the purpose in our judging. So when we look at the church as a whole and we see this rampant immorality and we see these, this is all this going on, our heart condition should be weeping. We should be weeping for these people because if they are believers, they are living a million miles from where God wants them to live. And if they're living away from where God wants them to live, what is true about their lives? Going nowhere, yeah, not going, but just for them individually. Yeah. Going nowhere. There is no power in a life that is lived like that. There is no joy in a life that is lived away from God. There is no peace in a life that is lived in a way that God does not ask, want. You, they might be able to fake it. They might be able to pretend for a while, but they have no defense against the world and Satan. So when Satan starts to come at them, they have no defense mm -hmm. because they have no power mm -hmm. and, you, because, and because they're living a lifestyle that is away from what God wants for them. See, the thing is, do you look at these people and think, oh my goodness, if you could just surrender this to the Lord, he would fill you with such joy. You know, he would just yeah. be everything that you need. Is that our kind of thinking? And is our idea when we're coming in judgment, I don't want you to walk around with a splinter in your eye. You won't be able to see where you're going. You'll be bumping into things all the time and hurting yourself. Is that our overriding thing? Or is it, this is what the Word of God says, this is what you've got to do, out. Out of fellowship. Out. Yeah, that's what, you know, yeah. So, um, Isn't there a caution attached to that? Oh yeah, definitely, definitely. But the thing I want to get to is we are to judge one another. We are to judge one another. We are to behavior, not salvation. You can't judge my salvation. I could be an abject sin and you wouldn't know whether I'm saved or not. But you can judge my behavior. And you are supposed to. 
you're supposed to. Now, again, let's try to keep the provisos here. You're judging my behaviour when I am saying to you, I can live any way I want and God doesn't mind. You're saying, I'm saying to you, God wants me to be happy. I can do that, that's no problem. Yeah, but deep down, you know, you know that's not right. No, but, hold, but what I'm saying is, this is the person you would say, okay, I'm sorry, but I can't fellowship with you because I know that God does not like this lifestyle. It's not honouring to God. Do you see what I mean? Mm -hmm. So I've, you're not going to come up against someone who's really struggling to fight their whatever that's going on. You're not going to come alongside me for 10 years when I'm trying to stop drinking, when I'm drinking too much all the time and, and say, right, well, and if you don't give up tomorrow, out of fellowship we, you go. Do you see what I mean? You're to come up to me and know, and I, as I share with you, I'm really struggling with this because I know it doesn't honour God, but I really can't stop. And you're supposed to be saying, I'll help you. Yes. We'll meet together. We'll pray together. We'll go through the scriptures together. We will do whatever it takes to bring you before the throne of grace so that you can do what God wants you to do. But now the other scenario is that I say, do you know what, I like getting drunk. And what's the matter? And when I'm drunk, I can talk about the Lord Jesus so much better than when I'm not. <laughs> and oh my goodness, I'm not afraid to give the gospel when I'm totally drunk. <laughs> Do you see what I mean? <laughs> yeah. And, and I'm going to encourage all the other people I know to get drunk with me. And we're all going to live this life of drunkenness and whatever else. Now you've got to say, this person needs to be out of fellowship. This person is so far gone in her sin, she can't even see what's right and wrong. There's no struggle in her. There's no desire for God's will in her life. So let's put her out of fellowship in the hope and trust that she will so miss fellowship that she will do whatever she can to come back. Mm. I Jehovah's Witness some years ago and they had a committee and they I remember the particular time that they were judging this chap and he said he was innocent but the committee passed a guilty verdict on him and he was thrown out of Jehovah's Witness Oh, praise God for that, Alan. <laughs> <laughs> praise God. Yeah. But the point is that we're acting as God. Yeah. 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 Is it, is it possible to... Maybe I'm just afraid to, to sort of face the discipline thing and if you don't change, mm. then you must mm. leave the church. Mm. Is it possible to say to, to somebody who's been sinning, living that sort of life, that that the church, you know, they are members of the church, the church loves them, they want to support them and help them, but at the end of the day, the choice is theirs. Mm -hmm. So in a sense, mm -hmm. they either value the friendship and the membership, the fellowship mm -hmm. of the church mm -hmm. enough to mm -hmm. want to work with us, mm -hmm. 
or they don't and they mm. want to go. Mm. And then, the, then actually they remove themselves mm. from the church. Mm. It's not I wish it were nice and easy like that, Sue, because Paul says put them out. That's what I'm trying to get at. He's saying put them out of fellowship. Do not associate in any way with an immoral brother or sister. Do not associate with them. And isn't there a point that if we don't do what we're told, are we actually helping that person with their eternal, with what their sanctification in a sense? Because we can't judge whether they're... So if we, if we don't tell them or we don't put them out of fellowship and say enough is enough, you don't even see where your sin is. Mm. Because we can, we can we not rely on the fact that God will be with them wherever they are Absolutely. and he will not give absolutely. up wanting their life to be glorified. Yes, absolutely. So it's, I mean, I'm not saying I, I, it's easy and I could do it, but right. I'm just thinking yeah. outside of the box that would we be holding somebody back because we're not disciplining them in the way that we are definitely I think that's true to. definitely I think that's true but I, I think we have to get to the understanding that not everything is clear cut and simple and that even though these scriptures look clear cut and simple in the chapter before he was saying doesn't matter what you ju- how you judge me only matters what God judges Jesus himself will say do not judge lest you be judged in the same way we have to make Make sure we understand the context of it all and how we go on. And the thing is, you're talking, you said about a person who uh, is not changing. Actually, the change is not the significant thing. The, cha- the significant thing is, where is your heart? Yeah. No, not yours, theirs. Where's their heart? Do they know that what they're doing is not right in the sight of God, but they can't help it for some reason? They're not strong enough. They're not. Wi- they're just not able. Then wherever, it, whatever the reason is, is that and and they're struggling against what they are. That person, above all other people, needs love and grace and care and nurturing. Yeah. Or are they saying, you know, I don't give two hoots. I you know, of course God wants me like this. It doesn't, you know, where, show me, show me where in the Bible it says yeah. you can't do that. And then you show them and they say, well, anyway, that, that's an old book. I don't care about that. Mm-hmm. That's the person you've got to put out. Especially yeah. they say, oh, yes, but I read my Bible and I pray regularly and, you know, and I think God loves me. And God, you then know, you sit down with them and you say, me, did yeah. you read this before? Yeah. Have you read this part? They think God loves them, whatever they're like. They don't realise that they're... <coughs> you want to leave where you are. No, but, but see what I'm getting at. I think that question, uh, is this honouring to God? Exactly, is, is this honouring to God? Yeah, yeah. You don't tell them that it isn't, but no. let them think it's real. Yeah, exactly. And also, Paul's talking to a church, which is obviously made up of individuals, but the church is the light on the hill. It's exactly, the, it's, exactly. Yeah, it's the, mm the visible presence yes. of, of a God. You're representing yeah. Christ. Yeah. Yeah. So you can't have that, because then as you say, if that's all in the church, then there's no power, there's no witness. And there's, there's no, no difference. Why would someone come into yeah. a church that's exactly like it is outside? Yeah. What, what, why would you ever want that? Yeah. It's, yeah. So yes, all of those things, but, um, but they all need thinking about. They all need thinking about. Um, so um, he's told them don't associate with an immoral brother, um, he's not talking about don't associate with non-believers. He's talking because if, if you don't do that, you might as well go and live, you know, at the North Pole on your own in an igloo with the Lord. Um, so he's talking about do not allow rampant immorality to exist in your fellowship. 
because it is dishonouring to the Lord and, he, and it's dishonouring actually to, 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 up to the fellowship. Um, okay, so um, think about then what Christians have no right to judge. So the first one, you know, I asked the question, um, what was the question? I can't remember what I said actually. Oh, okay, how dare we judge others? What can we and can we not judge? Yeah. In other people. I mean, let's say you asked me to judge you. You came to me and you said, I've got a terrible pain in my back. I mean, it's just really bad. I think I might have slipped a disc. And I say to you, well, I'm a really God-fearing Christian and I know that's not a slipped disc. That's whatever. Sin. No. <laughs> no. I was trying to be ridiculous, but you were still in there. Sorry, sorry, no. I was just, well, I'm, I suppose, okay. Um, I'm not a doctor, okay? I'm not a doctor, so I cannot judge medical things. Okay, I might know a lot of stuff about them, but I can't tell you what's wrong with you. you you'll need to see an expert, okay? What can I judge in that scenario? What can I judge? You know? I can judge things I know. I can judge from the word. I can judge from what transformation is. I can judge from what God says. I can't even judge from my own experience, actually, because my own experience is my own experience, and it may not necessarily be everybody else's. So, But I can judge from the word. So now, when I come to these chapters, and when I go into a church where the minister's having an adulterous affair, and the youth pastor's doing whatever they're doing, and everyone's doing whatever they're doing, I can walk into that fellowship and say, this is not a place where God is honoured. No. This is not a place I'm going to have fellowship. Mm -hmm. This is not a place that yeah. I'm going to bring people yeah. because this is not what God wants. And I can make that assessment openly and honestly because I can say, I know what God says here. So ultimately, when you're coming to try to judge something or some, or some way of life, the only criteria you can use is the Word of God. Mm. It's, and you can only use the Word of God if you know the Word of God. Mm. So now, come back on it all. Come back on it all. What do you know about the Corinthian church? They were yeah, but wh how, how come there was all this blatant immorality? Well, they didn't really have the Word of God. They don't know the Word of God. They don't know it. They don't know it. They're hearing all sorts of stuff. Teaching. And they don't, yeah, they've got were false teaching or no teaching. Well. Hey? Weren't they heartless as well? Yeah, maybe, Alan, but they certainly don't know the word of God, that's for sure. Now look at our church today. Yeah. Yeah. Why is this blatant immorality going on? Because people don't know the word of God. They don't know the word of God. So in order to change what's going on in the church today, what's got to happen? People have got to know the word of God and they've got to decide that it's important to know the word of God otherwise they don't know how to live. Well actually when you look at the established church and you, what you've just said they, so many of them do know the word of God but they're ignoring it. Exactly. Yeah. 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 But I, I would say knowing the word of God is knowing in relationship, i.e. experiencing the word of God and understanding it to be God himself revealed yeah. in spoken language. Mm. Yeah. So that's a different thing, isn't it? It is, isn't it? Yeah. But they're still 
they yes, exactly. definitely, definitely. But you know when the Bible talks about, I love this about God because everything connects. I just love the fact that everything connects. But you know, the Bible talks about the end times. There will be a great apostasy, a great yeah. falling away. <laughs> and we're seeing that in this time. We're seeing a falling away from... A falling away means falling away from something that's already established. So um, there's a great falling away from the Word of God. There's a great movement away from, from knowing, i.e. in relationship knowledge, experiencing the Word of God, knowing it to be true. There's a great falling away from that. So what can you know about yourselves and me? Well, we know today is to be born again. Yeah, yeah. Check yourself. Yeah, check yourself. But seriously, you're here every week, aren't you, more or less? You're here as much as you can. You're in the Word. You're doing whatever. I don't mean here, but you're in the Word because you want to know the Word and everything else. So what do you know about yourself? You're not easily deceived. You're not. Because the more you know the word by experience, i.e. You're, you're living according to it, then the less you are able to be deceived, for any length of time yeah. at least. And also, that I honestly believe that God has called you out. He's called you out of a church that has moved away from the word of God. And he's called you into his word yeah. for a purpose. For a purpose, because yeah. God's calling is always for a purpose. Yeah. Now, what is the purpose that you've been called into the Word? Of course, at the very bottom line of it is to share what you know. And yeah, so we won't go anywhere more else. We'll take a break for a minute or two and yeah, have a cup of coffee. Yeah, two things I want to. Um, Make sure that I make that I was clear on. We have a responsibility to call sin sin. We have to do that. We have to take what God has already called sin and be unafraid to say that that is sin. Um, we are to judge sin. That's absolutely categorical. You and I cannot judge another person's motives. You can't. You don't know their heart, you don't know their life, you don't know anything else, but you are called to what, what you, we used to say, call a spade a spade. You, you know, if it's sin, if God says something is sin, then it is sin. Now, I had a friend in all the time I was drinking, I was a believer, I had a friend who was very supportive of me, who was very caring, who loved me, um, and yet she would never back off from that one point. It is sin. It's sin. She loved me. She prayed with me. We, you know, all of it. But she would never change her, um, her stance on that. What you are doing is sinful. It's wrong. Now, we need to come to that place where what God calls sin, we know is sin. And that we are unafraid to say, that is sin. Um, because actually... There are many people out there who don't even know what sin is. That's the first thing. People who have been born again. And then people who are struggling with that sin. And what they don't need is another Christian coming along and saying, it's okay, it's okay. You yeah, just, God wants you to be happy. What we need to be is full of grace and full of truth. 
That's what Jesus was, full of grace and truth. John chapter 1 tells us that. We beheld his glory, um, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. There are ways to say that's sin. We need to understand how, but we need to be unafraid to say something is sin. So uh, what kinds of things are we to judge? We are to judge idolatry, adultery, homosexuality, thievery, drunkenness, maliciousness, murder, anything you can think of. We are to judge gossip, envy, jealousy, um, greed. We are to judge those things and call them what God calls them. Sin. Yeah. Okay, but that's one that's thing. A thing. No, I, think I know. I actually think I'm coming into the days that God forewarned me about years ago. I sat at my little desk in my little office and looked out my window, and I was writing something and uh, that I was going to teach, and into my head came, "You could go to prison for saying that. Mm. You could go to prison for saying that." And I was afraid, instantly afraid. And I had to, I forget what it was, I think it was about homosexuality, probably. You could go to prison for saying that. And um, I, I, yeah, I did get afraid. This was a few years ago, not not in the last couple of years. And I had to pray my way through that. But nonetheless, you know, I mean, what's it all about if we're afraid to say what God says? We can't be afraid to say what God says. But at the same time, we are to be filled with his grace. Yeah. You know, and understand, you know, my friend understood that I was battling not to do what I was doing. You know, and it was difficult for me and hard. And I had no joy for a long time. And she knew that. So she wasn't coming at me with a ton of bricks all the time saying, well, get over yourself, Anne, and get shaped up or I can't talk to you on the phone and I can't fellowship with you. She wasn't saying that. She was graciously loving me and helping me and pointing me back all the time to where I should go to find the way out. That's what we have to do. She was. She was. Yeah, she was. She was a good friend. And that's what we're called to be to one another. We're supposed to be brothers and sisters in Christ. We're supposed to recognize that life's not easy. It's hard. Choices are not easy. Surrender is the hardest thing in the entire world. And we're, try- we're supposed to be trying to help each other to understand that in that surrender will be the biggest joy you can never kind of find. That's the thing. So we're supposed to judge, but we have to notice how Paul writes these words because it's really important. First of all, he speaks of, for example, idolaters rather than idolatry. He talks about homosexual offenders rather than homosexuality. He talks, the wording is really important, not because it indicates a person rather than the sin, but because what he's trying to get over is people who habitually practice as a way of life that's sin. Yeah. Do you see what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. if you are habitually practicing drunkenness as a way of life, which I was, I mean, uh, you know, there are levels of drunkenness, so I wasn't falling about on the street, thankfully, <laughs> but, but I was habitually practicing drunkenness, <coughs> then that <coughs> is something that needs to be judged, right? And needs to be... Um, Uh, spoken about so when we're thinking about 
how we approach people and how we deal with them. We have to remember first what sin is, and then we are all guilty of sin, even now. So even now it's possible for you to go and get drunk. I know you probably can't imagine it, but it is. It's possible for you to go and get drunk. Yeah. <laughs> but that doesn't mean that you are categorized or characterized as a drunk. Yeah. And that's the difference. When people talk about you, what do they call you? What is your character? That's scary, right? So if you're a homosexual, that's all right, but if you're practicing yes. homosexual, yes. And I even think practicing homosexuality, I mean, let's face it, there are a lot of believers who struggle with their homosexuality or, you know, including women there. They're struggling with that because they know what the Bible says. So they're not going to this easily. They're not coming upon this and saying, oh, well, I don't care what God says. It's because they do care what God says that it is a struggle to them. That's the thing. So when we go in with all our righteous judgment and say, well, you shouldn't be doing that, that's bad, that's sin, we're not helping them at all. And we're not honoring God. So there, we have, you know, you and I are called to go further than, than the words on the page, if you see what I mean. You're supposed to understand things in context. You're supposed to be having the mind of Christ. We're supposed to be maturing and growing into our relationship with the Lord Jesus and therefore with each other. I don't need you to come and tell me, you know, Anne, that's wrong. I need you to come and tell me, okay, I know you know it's wrong. How can I help you? That's what I need from you. How can I help you? Yeah, but I mean, I'm assuming that we're talking about, you know, here. I'm assuming. So I don't need your condemnation or your judgment. I need your help. And most times when, when you meet someone, that should be really your first avenue. <coughs> you know. Um, so, okay. So our judgment is limited to practicing people who habitually practice sin and seem to have no care about it. And secondly to uh, people who are professing Christians, you are in no way to judge the world. You are not to judge the world. And why Christians spend so much time judging the behavior of people outside the church, I cannot fathom. Why, when the church is in such a bad place, why are we not turning our attention to growing up the church rather than condemning all these different lifestyles outside. How could we possibly expect non-believers to live like believers when even believers don't live like believers? So you can't judge someone's motive. You are not to judge unbelievers. Absolutely not to judge unbelievers. What unbelievers need is salvation. That's what they need. And until they're saved, until they come to know the Lord Jesus, they haven't got a hope of ever knowing what sin is and where its roots are. Um, so, but having said all of that, what, or the third question on the, page, on the paper was, why must we discipline? Why is there a need for church discipline? Given that we're talking about uh, habitual practice of sin where people seem not to care about it where the whole thing is promoted and actually encouraged uh, why should we be judging <coughs> that why must we discipline <coughs> that and what was question two question two was what were we supposed to judge what are we to judge 
Yes, yes. That's why we must discipline. Absolutely. Yeah, that's why we must discipline. That's why, that's why my friend made no bones about the fact that it was sin. Because she, she would not allow me to think that it was okay. Um, because she knew that that was uh, disrespecting the Lord. And so, um, whereas other people might have said, well, it's okay, it's not too bad, you're not falling down drunk, and you look, you really speak well about the Lord Jesus when you've had a few. So, you know, she never said that. It's a good, a good place for us to start is, in our thinking then, isn't it, is does this honour God? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Does well, the situation honour God? Yeah. Am I honouring God in the way I'm yeah. handling it or yeah. not handling it? Yeah. Or it's always going back to the word. Yeah. It's a tricky one, though, because let's take, for example, homosexuality, which is a big one in our day, and that's why I'm taking that, is um, what the church is currently teaching in large part is that a homosexual marriage honours God. It's love between two people, and love between two people honours God, because God is love. That's not yeah. No, so that's what I'm saying. It's not a simple thing, because it's being taught as if it is honouring to God. We're in days when sin is not called sin anymore. And actually, that's what I mean. That's the tragedy, that it's encouraged. And that people are not having to face the fact, well, God says this, and I think this, so who's right here? You know. Yeah. Um, and it's not helpful. It's not helpful for anybody. It's not helpful for the church. It's not helpful for the individual people. And it's certainly not helpful for the reputation of the Lord. In a way, is an answer to your question. Why is there a yeah. church decision? That's it. Because that when the, the unbelieving world looks on yeah. an organisation, the body that is supposed to represent mm. Jesus, mm. and sees all this, mm. it's such yeah. a bad witness. It is dishonouring God yeah. in His in Definitely, heart. definitely. Satan is active most in the church. Oh, definitely, yeah. Yeah, it doesn't need to be active in the world because he's got more ready. Absolutely, yeah. Jenny. Thank you. I think you. at the beginning you were saying how really these two chapters should be basic standard Christian life. Yeah. And if it was, mm. then we would have more uh, of Jesus to mm. show because mm. that would be what we'd be talking mm. about, not about mm. whether they should be living with them mm. or they should be doing mm. that because it's... It's just losing yeah. the gospel, really. Yeah, yeah. And I think, I think too, yeah, I do want to say because, you know, um, you read stories about homosexuals, lesbians, you, you, you read stories about drunks, alcoholics, drug addicts. You, you read stories and you know that, that a lot of believers struggle with these things. They really do struggle. And that struggle is honouring to God because they are struggling with it. And they're struggling with perceived, you know, that, that I don't know enough about the science of these things to, to be able to say, are you born that way? Or I, I don't know. You know, I would think if you had generations of alcoholics in your family, which I didn't, mine was all self-induced, but if you had generations of alcoholics in your family, you're probably more likely to be an alcoholic, you know. Um, so I don't know about all of that stuff. But I do know that there are a lot of people struggling. And what happens in a church that says it's all okay is that you, you, you actually even denigrate their struggle. Yeah. Yeah. So now they haven't got anywhere to go. Mm -hmm. they, they haven't even got the church family to go to because the church family is saying, well, why does it matter? Yeah. 
Do you see what I mean? So it's really, a, it's, it's a tragedy on so many levels. Um, yeah, so, so why must we discipline? Because, uh, because we are to uphold the reputation of Jesus Christ. And when we're talking about discipline, remember, we're talking about churches where it's, it's, it's blatant immorality. Actually, I don't think it's now a question of putting the immoral brother out of the church. I think mostly it's we have to come out of that place because it's just so common now in the church. Immorality, adultery, sleeping with people before you're married, sleeping with people when you are married, it's just so common that you would have to come out of that place rather than put the people out of the church. Um, it, strikes, it strikes me that as Christians we, do, we struggle with stating what we know is true in the Bible, where other faiths don't seem to have that, you know, struggle with saying, well, this is what the Quran says, or this, as a Hindu, I don't, I, I don't eat cows, cows sacred. They, you know, they stick to that as Christians, as the body of Christ, we don't seem to do that. We seem to want blow with the wind. I think it's probably because the Christianity is the only faith that actually is centred in a person and the relationship is love. And so when you think about a relationship or a religion, a faith based on love, it becomes very difficult to insert rules. So in a sense, what you could say is then the other faiths come alongside with the desires of the flesh because you can live within regulation or... Yes, other, f other faiths have no love relationship. No, no, I, yeah. There isn't a love relationship. Ours is, Christianity is the only faith that is based on love. Mm. For God so loved the world and, that, and we, we love because he first loved us. And once you introduce love into a, anything, it becomes a, a kind of <laughs> movable thing. It's hard to pin down. Yeah because it's so much, we think of love as an emotional thing. Mm. And so it's difficult. Um, okay, so for the church to fulfill its purpose then, because this is what Paul's really interested in, is it must be holy because it represents God. So it has to be holy and it has to live a disciplined life. It has to live a life that is seen to be, um, out, you know, not based on our own thinking, our own emotions. It has to be uh, a life that is determined at all costs to honour God rather than. And for us to uphold Christ, we have to make sure that in our own lives, that's what we're doing. But also remember, the goal of disciplining in the church or in fellowship is not to put that person out. It's to restore that person. That's the whole purpose of it. If your heart is not to restore that person or to help that person or to bring them on in their walk with the Lord, then actually you're in the wrong place, not them. You're in the wrong place. And so um, Paul's talking about you know, the fact that we have to discipline and the fact that we have to judge sin is all for the restoration of the sinner. Because when a sinner is restored, <coughs> what do you think happens? Joy, there's joy. There once, when one sinner turns to repentance, there's a party in heaven. What can you imagine is going on when a believer who's been living a life that didn't honour God suddenly realises, oh my goodness, and they surrender that to the Lord. There's going to be great rejoicing in, um, 
in heaven. So how do we discipline then? What, that's a, that was the number, question number four. How do we discipline? In the case of habitual sin and continuing immorality without any thought, um, how do we do that? Um, could somebody read Matthew 18? That might help. Matthew 18, 15 to 17. Linda's already talked about this, but Matthew 18... Um, Um, I think that Paul's already told them this because in, in chapter 5, Matthew 18, 15 to 17, in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, he says, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. So there's a letter gone missing um, because it's obviously the, the, the letter before 1 Corinthians. So he's obviously explained what he means, but they've misunderstood. And I think he's probably taken it from Matthew 18, 15 to 17. Not necessarily from Matthew, but, you know, from Jesus' teaching. Somebody read those verses. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. Thank you. Okay, what do you think the um, what do you think Jesus is talking about there? What's his main point? Well, it's gentle, isn't it? It's sort of giving us a, a step by step. Yes, um, a step by step process. Path. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't think he wants us to give up on somebody. Just um, they don't listen, then take somebody else. Yeah, yeah. He's talking about a process. You know, go to your brother and say to him, "Look, have you, do you really understand that actually it says this in whatever it says? You know, in Matthew's Gospel or in First Corinthians." And then they don't listen. They say, "Oh, don't be ridiculous." And then you go with a, another couple of people sometime, and you say the same thing, and and maybe the elders of the church then, and then. But basically, if they're not listening to you and they're not interested. What Jesus is saying, you put them out of the church. But not because you're putting them out because um, he doesn't want them to repent. For God wants all to repent and come to, uh, sorry, all, all to believe and come to repentance. So all sinners to repent. But so that they will so miss the fellowship that they will want to come back. So that's an obvious one. Um, uh, and, and what Jesus says, treat him as you would a Gentile or a pagan. What does that mean? Somebody doesn't know, doesn't believe. Yeah, so you treat him as an unbeliever. So if you know a believer who is constantly sinning, uh, someone who professes Christ, who has a lifestyle of sin, immorality, whatever it is, you pray for them and treat them as if they are an unbeliever. Now how will that translate then? What will that look like? Yeah, they'll leave the fellowship or you'll move the whole fellowship away and leave them whatever, but in whatever way that works, you're going to put them out of fellowship. Um, 
Exactly. So now what's your prayer for them? Yeah. Oh Lord, they need to know you. I don't know their heart. I don't know if they really are saved or they're not, but I know that I'm supposed to treat them as an unbeliever and that must surely include my prayers. So, you know, for people who you know are in a lifestyle that is, that, that is not honouring to God and they seem not to care, then y you pray for them as if they're an unbeliever. Um, and treat them as an unbeliever. What does that mean then? Just as if they don't know the Lord. Yeah, but how will you do that? Um, pray with them, salvation prayer. Yeah, yeah. Well, especially if you think you're not. Sorry. Sorry. Okay. So, if you, you have to treat them as an unbeliever, and then you think about, okay, so how do I treat unbelievers? Yeah. If I meet them. Yeah. Um, you share God's. You know, you, you, you live graciously. Yeah. You're kind. You, you yeah. Know, you, yeah. You, um, <coughs> yeah. No, you, I think you're right. So, them. yeah, that's yeah, all right. You pray with them like they're unsaved. Talk to them. I would say that I think that definitely you're doing that. But I think that what he's trying to get at is here, you can't share family secrets with someone who's not in the family. There's no point in you talking to them. Long involved theological discussions about predestination and, and what this is and what that is. You are to treat that person as if they don't understand the things of God because they don't understand the things of God. And now you're reserving your intimate fellowship with believers, with believers, people who are walking on with the Lord, difficulty or whatever it is you're, you know, you cannot have the sort of fellowship that uh, Jesus describes amongst believers with unbelievers. And if you're to treat them as an unbeliever, you can't have fellowship with them. Well, this how is do you draw people into me? Well, that's what I'm saying. You see, yeah, what unless you talk to them first. Yeah. You don't share com uh, confidential, um, confidential information. Uh, uh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so think about this then. Think about this. You could go into a church building on a Sunday and maybe 80% of the people in there would not be believers. They've come to church, great thing. You've, you've called them in. They're hearing nice music. They're going to hear a good message, hopefully, or whatever. Well, they're not saved, you mean? Yeah, not saved. They're not believers. They're just not, not saved. Yeah. But they're coming in because they're bringing their kids to school. They've heard the Sunday school is good, blah, 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 blah. Now, you're going to love those people, and you're going to try to portray mm -hmm. Jesus to them and care for them and ask how their lives are, and you'll pray for them. But you're not going to go and sit down and have a prayer meeting with them later on. You're not going to share your own particular deep, deep struggles with understanding about something that the Lord has said to you because they can't understand it. It's like I live with an unbeliever. I share everything with him except spiritual things because he cannot understand spiritual things. I mean, it's not that he's an idiot. He's, uh, he's very intelligent, and he's and he's he can you know, and he can empathise with difficulties and things. But I can't discuss with him predestination in any meaningful way, or I can't say to him, "I'm really struggling with this because I know that the Lord is really calling me to this," because he he doesn't get it. He doesn't get it. It is. So I have to pray for him well, as he is. He's an unbeliever. I can't have intimate fellowship with him, spiritual fellowship with him. I can't. Now, just take that to people who are not believers. Yeah. 
you, if we were to get together over lunch, I would not want to talk about anything else unless it pertained to the Lord Jesus. I wouldn't. I don't want to waste my time with believers talking about anything else. I mean, obviously, your own lives come in and you, you talk about things, but always in relation to Jesus. Yeah. If you go out for lunch with unbelievers, what are you going to talk about? Rubbish. You're going to talk about everything else because they can't really talk about that. This is what we're trying to get at. Make the distinction in your mind. Yeah. Make those distinctions mm. that you can't. You're going to have to treat that person as an unbeliever because they're living as an unbeliever. Yeah. And to all intents and purposes, they are an unbeliever. Yeah. But to make sure that they know that God loves them. Of course. God loves sinners. He loves them. God loves my husband. Mm. You know, yeah. he, he died for him. Mm. So... Yes, it's not a question of love. It's a question of intimate fellowship. <coughs> what did um, Jesus say? I came, to, I came for the sick. I came to call the sinners to repentance, not the healthy. I came for the sick, not the healthy. Yeah. Yeah. Luke's gospel, I think, but I'm not sure where, Maureen. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. So, um, okay, and the final question. Doesn't discipline violate someone else's rights? Who am I to, or who's the church even, to discipline others? Doesn't that violate violate other people's rights? I mean, that comes out of our culture because we have a very individualistic culture. You know, I have no right to judge you because you're a person, I'm a person, and I can't sit in judgment on anybody. That's the culture of our day, and it was the culture in... Corinth. We're all free. Now, especially add into that mix freedom in Christ, and you have a very potent um, heresy, which is that I'm answerable to no nobody. I'm only answerable. If, I, if I'm a believer, I'm answerable to God. Yeah. I'm certainly not answerable to you. Um, and if I'm an unbeliever, I'm not even answerable to God. <coughs> That's our culture. Definitely, it's it's that's our culture, Maureen, and it's becoming more and more like that. So, how do we answer the question? How does doesn't you know discipline violate someone's rights? Well, we, we have no rights, aren't we? We're supposed to be dead to self and surrender. E- exactly. So, have no rights. you have no rights. That's the only answer. You don't have any rights. You don't belong to yourself. Mm. You belong to God. You say you have believed in the Lord Jesus, which means you have given up all rights to yourself, to God. That's the definition of bond isn't it? Yeah. You were offered your freedom, freedom. you were given your freedom, and you freely gave it back. It back. Mm. Yeah. So, and that's a big misunderstanding, isn't it, in the church, that, you know, because of this freedom <coughs> that we're told we have in Christ, we think that means freedom to live as we please. Yeah. And that's what's being promoted within the church, that we have freedom. But the reality is we are less free now (laughs) than we were before because we belong to God. And that's what he says at the end of chapter 6. Glorify God with your body. Your body is a temple of um, the Holy Spirit. Um, When he gets into the disputes and the lawsuits, is he does he go anywhere different in the in that chapter or is it much the same? Um, 
what does, I mean, why does he talk about going outside to lawyers? Why does he say that's wrong? Yeah, they're being judged by people who are not exactly. They don't know the. We're in chapter six. Does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbour, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? So, what's his reasoning for not going outside of the church to judge disputes? Because they don't understand. Because they don't understand also, and they're unrighteous, and. Yeah, what's the whole point of the church? What's the church? Yeah, we're supposed to be a witness to the Lord. And we say we've died to self. So why would we be having a dispute about something? What sort of um, equivalent could you say for today? Because I've never heard of two Christians within a church taking each other to court. Is that, is that quite uh, I guess, let's say if you had a dispute about boundary lines in property, you know, where your fence should be and whose fence it was, and but that would I don't know. With a non-Christian, because you don't usually... Um, live next live door to a Christian. No, but I mean, let's say you do. I mean, that oh, he's okay. talking on the basis of... Yeah. Or let's say disputes, I don't know, you came into an inheritance and your, your sister, who's a Christian, oh, also yeah, shared that inheritance, but you're arguing about the split of it, you know, right. maybe, or... Anything, any, any, um, yeah, I, I can't think of anything yeah. else at the moment, but that sort of thing. No, it's more difficult for us because we don't live amongst Christians, but um, um, he's saying that they were taking each other to court. Um, yeah, there you go. If you lent someone some money and they didn't give it back to you and you tried to get it back and they didn't give it back and then, you know, what would you, what would you do? Um, why? There's two reasons. One, because we're supposed to be honouring Christ, and also, what's the other reason? I mean, that's the ba- main reason. But he he says here, don't you know that you're going to judge the world? <laughs> I mean, my goodness, why are you giving judgment over to someone who doesn't even know the Lord when you are going to be judging angels? <laughs> I know. So really, maybe you should be doing a bit of training along the way, and uh, being able to to sort out disputes. Um, Exactly. Exactly. That's an interesting, yeah. complicated, not straightforward <laughs> case. <laughs> Absolutely. Is there one that isn't really? Mm-hmm. Is there one that isn't really difficult? So finally then, you, when you get to the last part of chapter 6, so the, um, uh, the last part of chapter 6 is that he, he returns to the uh, sexual purity and he returns to it by saying, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but I will not be mastered by anything. He talks about food and then he goes on about immorality. For Now, uh, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. So he returns to his main point, which is the sexual purity of the church. Um, Everything is permissible for me. Um, How does he put that into perspective? It's not necessarily profitable. Right. It means that it's not necessarily good for him just because he can do it. 
Exactly. So he's talking about the freedom we have now in yeah. Christ. And he's, he's putting that against the backdrop of um, eating meat sacrificed to idols, which is what was going on in Corinth. We don't have that so much. But, um, so let's say we'll take my wine issue because we've talked about that. There's nothing wrong with drinking wine. It's, it's lawful. I can do it. The, lo- the Lord's okay about it. But it's certainly not profitable for me. And it may not be profitable for you. Um, he's saying, I won't be mastered by it. There's the key, isn't it? What are you mastered by? So you can, you have freedom. God's freely given you all things, but you can't be mastered by them. Um, And he says immorality, um, any other sin except immorality has to be thought of much worse because it goes into the body. Yeah. 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 Sexual immorality is the worst kind of sin because that is a sin against your own body. Um, Yeah. And because Christ lives in you. Um, When you take those habits then of Christians, things that you you know are permissible for you, um, it may not be profitable. I, you might be mastered by it, but also other people may struggle with those things that you know are okay. And he's going to get into that as he goes on into the next few chapters. What's the main reason for it all then? I mean, if you had to say one overriding thing in all of this, you know, that why you can't be mastered by food or this or that, why you mustn't come into disputes with other believers, why... It's discipline and self-control. Yes. Giving over to living the way God wants us to live that's good for us. Yes, that's that's one level of it. That's definitely true. It's not glorifying to God. It's not glorifying to God. That's definitely another level. But I want to go right to the base of it. What is at the base of it all? You have been bought with a price. You do not belong to yourself. Why would you be in a dispute over property when nothing you have belongs to you? Why would you be going into sexual immorality when your body does not belong to you? Why would you be taking something that God has blessed you with and turning it into something that dishonors him? Because you are not your own. You don't belong to you. Your body, your mind, your heart, your soul, none of it belongs to you. It all belongs to God. Why does it belong to God? Because you gave it to him. You gave it to him. You said, I surrender to you. I give you my life. You are my Lord. So it it all belongs to God. Um. You have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. Um, okay, any questions? We're earlier you than don't usual. Want that. You might as well just give up, mightn't you, really? Yes. You don't want it. Yeah. What's the point of it all? Yeah. Yeah. It's been very interesting because it's just shown a totally different line on ways. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. I think God does it actually, Debbie. I think He's shown us this because it is a way to 
put the barrier up, make a distance between us, yeah. And I think we get afraid of distance, don't we? We think we're not supposed to. We're supposed to love all the unbelievers in the world and love them into the kingdom and all of that. And that's true, but we are not to love what they do. And, and so there you have the difficulty. Um, and for unbelievers, we're not to judge what they do at all. We're just to tell them the gospel. Not, no point in telling unbelievers about their sin. They don't understand it. They, they like just don't do understand they it. They don't, they don't, they don't like to control, don't they? But they just don't even know. I mean, no, you know, yeah, s- what is sin? You don't know. And actually, we sin because we are sinners. Yeah. We sin because we live separated mm. from God. Yeah. That, that's the thing. I was just uh, thinking about when you... S- I can't remember now what you said. That made me think about it. Anyway, it's the, the thinking of Jude 1, how the Lord keeps us all. And... Um, so wrap that up with what is a wise steward and mm. what I found out about the steward. Oh, I know what it was. You said we don't have anything of our own anyway. And when I looked at the thing steward, it was the, the one who looks after... That you, you know you're in next week's lesson. Oh. It doesn't matter. No, no, Carry no, on. No, no, I don't want to stop you. I'm just saying because maybe you think we haven't covered it now. Mm-hmm. But, but it's next week. So can, no, but tell us, no, Rosie. Honestly, no, no please. It's because such a treasure to keep. Okay, well, make sure you do then. No, seriously, because, yeah. I'm not trying to say don't say it. I'm just trying to say that's why we didn't talk about it. Um, there is naturally a distance anyway, isn't there? I, I think the more I'm in the words, the more I feel that with non-Christians. That you, you feel that, that there isn't quite... There's not that connection. There's not the connect, that's and right. And, um, hmm. I see it more and more. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that the the whole idea of Christian fellowship is completely misunderstood. We think of fellowship, or we think of our church, as the place where we bring all the unbelievers, and they hear the gospel. That's not church. Church is family. Church is fellowship. Church is where we go to build each other up, to be strengthened, to be... Um, to grow in the Lord so that we can go out and love people with the love of Christ. But once you have that mix now, which is what we have, we have buildings that say church on the door, but they're not designed for the building up of believers or for the uh, growth of believers and the fellowship of believers. They're designed to be places of evangelism. And I'm not saying that's wrong, but we have to understand it. Because if we are going on a Sunday for the sort of fellowship that the Bible talks about, we're not going to find it. We're going to be very disappointed. Mm. So we have to make sure that we understand what fellowship is and how it's maintained <coughs> and then that we do go out. We maybe go to our church on a Sunday and we sit next to you know, 10 unbelievers and we're able to talk to them about the Lord yeah. because we've had fellowship separately. Um, church is, is, is believers. That's what it is. Yeah, exactly. We are the church. And, um, yeah. Okay, thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord. I know it's a difficult one and it starts off simple and ends up not being. And thank you, Lord, that you're going to take us on with it and keep us thinking. Help us, Father, to be clear in what we say and how we say it so that we really do know um, what the truth is, Lord. And... Um, Help us to be sure about this whole idea of, of judging, discerning. Um, help us, Lord God, to, 
to understand really what it is that Paul is saying here and who he's speaking to and how we are to take that into 2018, into our churches and into our lives, Lord God. And help us most of all to differentiate between believers and unbelievers, Lord, mm -hmm. that we really would know that it is nothing to do with us to judge unbelievers and that we would... Um, just be focusing, Lord God, in, on building up the body of Christ, doing our part to encourage and edify and exhort other believers to the joy, actually, the joy that's set before them. Lord, and I ask, Father, that you would enable us to do that, for we cannot do it on our own. And I thank you that you will, Lord, for you are a gracious, faithful God. And I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Amen.